All right, what's up, Liquid Church? How y'all doing today? My name's Nathan, one of the pastors. Let's hear it for our campuses and those watching online today. Welcome. We're so glad you guys are here with us today. We're in a series called Playlist, the soundtrack of your life. It's a series about music, looking at how we interact with music. You know, we take our music today, we put it into playlists, whether it's for going to the gym or going on vacation. And we noticed that Jesus actually had a playlist. He had a playlist of about 150 songs. He memorized them when he was a boy. These, this was actually ancient Israel's songbook called the Psalms. Someone say Psalms. Psalms. It actually means praise in Hebrew, and there's different genres of psalms. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at psalms of praise and worship. These songs were more upbeat, and they were celebratory, like, man, God is awesome. He's so good. And then last week, we looked at psalms of lament. You guys remember what lament means in Hebrew? Sadness, complaints. Yeah, and it basically is complaining to God. It's dealing with the emotions of sadness, the emotions of anger and sorrow. And so we looked at how the structure of these psalms actually echoes the different phases that we may go through in our lives. For instance, many of us, when life is going great, we are cruising through life. Someone say cruising. This is when all you get are green lights. There is a parking spot at Trader Joe's, and so you don't have to circle around trying to find something. But unfortunately, life doesn't stay cruising. Eventually, we hit times where we're crashing. Someone say crashing. And this is when we go through seasons of pain, maybe seasons of doubt. Uh, we go through the loss of someone. We have a hard time finding a job. It's like our lives have been turned upside down. But eventually, this phase ends, which leads into crushing it. Someone say crushing it. And this is when you take everything that you learned in this phase, all of the pain and the sorrow, and you can actually look back with the perspective to see what God was doing here. And you take those perceptions and those realities and you actually incorporate them within yourself and you have this greater trust in God. You know that what doesn't kill you makes you? And as Christians, there's this interesting thing that happens that we are almost reminded of. You see, you don't get to resurrection unless you go through death. And I think most of us would be like, man, it would be great if I could just go straight from cruising right to crushing it, right? It's like I don't have to deal with any of this stuff, but yet it's when we're crashing when we experience the greatest transformation. It's when we realize that God has been with us in the dark places and he will always be with us no matter what happens in our lives. We learn more in this phase. But here's the question I want to look at today. What do you do when you're the reason that your life has crashed? What do you do when you're the reason why everything has blown up? You're the one that's the cause of the wreckage. It's not the economy. It's not the president. It's not your boss. It's you. How do you move through that when you've crashed your life? What do you do when you've crashed your marriage? There's someone um, who's on my Facebook, and she's always posting about uh, how great her ex-husband is. He's like, he's a great co-parent. Um, I really think he's a great guy. He's so awesome. But she's the reason why their marriage crashed. She had a series of infidelities. In fact, she had one while she was pregnant with their second child. And so he's like, I can't stay with you. I just don't trust you. And, and so the marriage ended. And now she's filled with this regret and remorse. She's like, oh, I want to be back together with him. But she crashed marriage. Or maybe you crashed your career. I was talking with a guy who um, has been struggling with an addiction to pornography. And he said, you know, Nathan, at first it started with dabbling. You know, me and my friends would just text some pictures back and forth. 
I'd start to get these pictures at work and I, I just couldn't stop looking. I was looking for them on my work computer. Someone from IT came in and they uh, were asking about my browser history and then they took it to my manager and I lost my job. He crashed his career. He's not sure what he's going to be able to do next, which led to him crashing his marriage. Because now his wife's like, I didn't know about this. You had this secret life. And, and they're going through this really painful time. Or how about crashing your finances? I was talking to a couple where they were really trying to get focused on getting out of debt and getting better with their finances. But the husband behind his wife's back opened up another credit card account. And he started spending, spending, spending. He maxed out the credit card, got another one, did the same with that one, and got a third credit card, did it the third time before his wife finally found out. They were in over $100,000 worth of debt. And now she's like, I don't know if I can trust him. And they're on the brink of divorce. They may lose their house because of his bad choices. He crashed not just their finances, but he crashed their lives. What do you do when you're the reason why everything has fallen apart. Maybe the first thing you do is you reach for your earbuds and you listen to some music. Because when you crash your life, you're filled with sorrow and sadness and regret and remorse. And maybe you don't have the words to kind of express those things. So you, you find maybe one of your favorite singers so they can kind of express it, right? Because that's what song's about. You, you can express your anguish and your sorrow and your remorse through this music. That's what musicians do. That's what artists do, right? Like, what does Bruno Mars do when he crashes a relationship? I think many of us know Bruno Mars from Uptown Funk. It's the kind of music that makes you move and dance. But when Bruno Mars crashes a relationship, you know what he does? He finds a piano and he writes a song like When I Was Your Man. Check this out. I should have bought you flowers and held your hand. Should have gave you all my hours when I had the chance. Take it to Everybody, cause all you wanted to do was dance. Now my baby's dancing, but she's dancing with another man. So what do you do when you crash your life? You crash your relationships. You, you blow everything up. Is there hope? But what if I told you that the Bible actually gives us a process that we can walk through to get to the other side of the crash? Or you can start out on one side broken and bleeding and wounded, but actually get through it and find healing and hope. You can go from crashing to crushing. And we find this process in a song that David's written called Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 51. And it was written, again, like I said, by David, and it's what's known as a penitent psalm or a psalm of apology. Someone say, I'm sorry. I forgive you. It's, it's okay. We can move forward now. So David writes this psalm of apology, and here's how he begins. He sings these words. He sings, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, would you blot out my transgressions? Would you wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? Why is David feeling so sorrowful? Like, why is he asking for mercy and forgiveness? Like, what happened? Maybe you were here last week, and you're like, wasn't he hiding from King Saul in the desert? Like, on the run? So what happened? Like, why is he now asking for forgiveness and mercy? Well, eventually David becomes the next king of Israel. 
And he's ruling this king, this growing kingdom. And eventually, that's where David crashes his life. David makes a series of choices that end up causing all sorts of damage and leave a wake of bodies behind him. You see, it began by David, you know, he's working late one night. The kingdom's growing. It's, it's expanding. And as that's going on, he's sitting on his rooftop terrace. He's sitting on his couch. He's looking around. And he, he looks through a window, and he sees a woman taking a shower. He goes, like, who is that? And he finds out that her name's Bathsheba. And David summons her, and they have this affair. He gets her pregnant. And David's like, okay, this can't happen. I got to figure out a way to cover this up. And so then what David does is he actually goes and summons her, her husband. Uriah, he's a soldier. He's serving on the front lines. And so he summons Uriah, and he's like, Uriah, you're doing such a great job. Man, you are an amazing soldier, an amazing leader. We have to celebrate you. Well, how about you and your wife Bathsheba? Why don't you guys come over to my palace? You know, you guys can use the champagne room. We can party. We can have a good time. And then you guys can go back to your house. And you know. And Uriah is like, my, my king, I appreciate this offer, but how can I enjoy peace with my wife when my men are at war? They're being shot at, and they're experiencing, uh, you know, great risks for the, for the kingdom. And David's like, great, Uriah is a man of integrity. So Uriah goes back to the front lines. David orders a hit on Uriah and has him killed. And so David's got to cover this up. He's like, okay, what do I, oh, I know what I'll do. He takes Bathsheba and marries her. And everyone's like, David, what a great king you are. Not only did you take this widow, uh, you know, you take care of her, but you married her, you brought her into the palace. What a great king you are. And David's like, I am. <laughs> David's sitting on his rooftop palace. Uriah's been taken care of. Bathsheba's been taken care of. And you guys know, Sin feels pretty good in the season. The thrill of it. He, fe he feels good. He's like, you know, I'm kind of sad for Uriah, but not really. So maybe David is picking up his earbuds up, and he's listening to this song. He's like, you know, he's jamming out to maybe Demi Lovato, playing this. Check this out. David's like, sorry, Uriah, not sorry. Because think about it, he got away with it. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. And the thing is, though, he didn't really get away with it, did he? God saw him. And so God actually sends one of David's good friends, a guy named Nathan, who is a prophet. And a prophet is simply someone who gets a divine download from God, and then he disseminates that information to other people. So he gets this divine download, and Nathan approaches David. By the way, it's Nathan, not Nathan. Okay? N-A-T-H-A-N. -A -A -N, and I, anyway, you, you get the idea. Nathan goes to David and goes, David, I know. I know about you and Bathsheba and the baby. I know what you did to Uriah. I know how you let down the people of God. David, I know. And God knows. So how would you respond if you were David in this situation? You're the most powerful man in the room, the most powerful man in the country. David could have just ignored him and go, yep, sorry, not sorry. David could have also just been like, so what? You know, Nathan, you're, gonna get, you're going to jail. He could have had Nathan arrested, beaten, tortured, killed. But David actually is cut to the heart. He's like, oh my gosh, what, what have I become? What have I done? 
And David changes his tune. He goes from singing, sorry, I'm not sorry, to singing these words. He sings, for I know my transgressions and my sin, it's always before me, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Can I ask, do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone that can call you out on your sin? Who can actually burst your bubble of the illusion that you build around yourself when you find yourself in those places? Because David needed a Nathan to point out to David, David, not only did you sin, your sin has a ripple effect. It doesn't just affect you. It affects your children that are watching what you do. It's affecting the people that you work with. It's affecting the nation that you're building. And that's what David saw. David's household, his family life was in chaos after that event. He had his son, one son kill another son. One of his daughters was actually raped by her half-brother. Uh, Absalom, David's son, actually tries to overthrow David. There's all this chaos in his family, and it spills over politically. Because remember, now there's this civil war between, his, between David and his son Absalom. Even when David takes the kingdom back, and he's the king again, the seeds of the kingdom's destruction have been sown by these acts. There was a socioeconomic impact because of David's sin. And so David is looking around at all of this beginning to happen. He's crashed his life. He's wrecked it. And he's sorrowful, and he's regretful, and he's remorseful, and he's crying out to God. He cries out. He sings out these words. He says, surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely, God, you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. But God, I, I ignored it. God, I blew it. I failed. David is singing a psalm of confession. It's a psalm of contrition. He's not arguing with God. He's not justifying to God what he did. He's saying, God, you're right. I own this. And then he asks for something that's, that's, that's beyond maybe our, what we would think he would do. He sings, cleanse me with hyssop. That word hyssop, I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to this in a second. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. I'll be spotless as snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. And hide your face from my sin. And blot out all my iniquity. He's saying, God, you got to take my heart to the dry cleaner. You got to get out all the stains of shame, the stains of guilt, the stains of my sin, the very stench of the evil that I've, commit, that I've done, the horror. Can you remove all this, God? Can, can you get rid of it? In fact, God, you're going to do a creative act. My heart's so dark and so shriveled and so broken. You've got to do something new. And so he prays this prayer. In fact, I want all of us at all of our campuses to pray these words together. You ready? One loud voice. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and willing spirit to sustain me. See, Psalm 51 shows us the journey of going from the side of the crash to get through it. And there's two parts to it. There's God's part and there's our part. Our part, our responsibility, is we need to repent. We actually need to say, I'm, I'm moving away from this. And God's part is that he restores us. In fact, why don't we do this? Why don't you go ahead and put a hand up and say, repent. repent. Put your other hand up and say, restore. restore. Repent. repent. Restore. restore. Your job is to repent. 
God's job is to bring restoration, and it leads to transformation. Now, maybe what some of you are thinking is, okay, repent. So you're saying, I just need to say sorry? You're saying, if I crash my life and destroy the relationships around me, if I say I'm sorry, that's okay? That, 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 that's magical? These magic words make everything better? And if you have that understanding, I, I get it, because I think that's what our culture sometimes says. If you just say the right words, you can move on. But that's not biblical repentance. But I feel like we've been soaked in a culture of cheap apologies. If I look at the uh, theologian and philosopher Justin Bieber, <laughs> who teaches us about apologizing, here's what he says in his song, Sorry. Check this out. Is it too late now to say sorry? Cause I'm missing more than just your body. Oh, is it too late now to say sorry? Yeah, I know all that I let you down. Is it too late to say sorry now? Only Justin Bieber can work in, I'm sorry and I miss your body, all in the same apology. <laughs> it's like, what? But, you, but think about it. There's an entire generation that's learning how to apologize from Justin Bieber and in the culture. It's like, if you say the right words, then maybe you'll make things better. Maybe you'll ease the tension. Maybe you'll still get what you want out of this relationship if you just say the words and you feel bad enough about it. Or even the singer-songwriter Halsey, very talented, but, you know, when she talks about apologizing, it, it's not the idea of taking ownership of what you've done. It's sharing the regret. In fact, sometimes she shares the regret at the beginning of the relationship. Check out this song. So I'm sorry to my unknown lover. Sorry that I can't believe that anybody ever really starts to fall in love with me. Sorry to my unknown lover. Sorry. I could be so blind Didn't mean to leave you And all of the things that we had behind So you can see in this video there is like rubble everywhere. There is a car crash. She's crashed this relationship and what she says is even before the relationship has begun, hey listen, I just want to apologize because this is going to end badly for you. Uh, you know, like, you know, in the past, my relationships have fallen apart. Um, I'm not going to do anything to change them. It's really your fault for falling in love with me. So, and it's like, that's not an apology. That's like when someone goes, well, I'm sorry that you're offended. <laughs> what? I'm sorry that you feel, that's not an apology. Okay. So guys, when you apologize, it's never, I'm sorry that you're hurt. No, no, no. You got to own it. That, that's the thing about apologizing. You see, I feel like in our culture, we've basically embraced this idea of I feel bad, I feel remorse, so maybe if I say something, oh, I'm sorry, then I, I feel better, I feel okay, but it doesn't really change anything. Because you see, it's not about the surface, it's about the heart. There's a couple that um, came in for marriage counseling, and uh, the wife's sitting down, and she's saying, my husband is verbally abusive. The things that he says to me are just so hurtful and so crippling that I just, I don't know what to do with it. You know, he, he says things about my weight. He talks about how I look. He, he says rude and inappropriate things in front of my family members, in front of the people I work with. And it's really just debilitating. And then you, you ask the husband, well, so what's going on here? And he's just like, she's too sensitive. She is just taking all, you know, she, you know, like her, her family's uptight. She's being too sensitive. It's not a big deal. We're just joking. We're having a good time. 
And that's it. He, he minimizes what she's going through. So they leave. A couple weeks pass. I get a phone call. Husband's very different on the other side. He is in tears. He is weeping. He's like, I, I, she's left me, and I don't know what to do. I can't survive without her. I, I need her. I, I'll change. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll be a better man. I'll, I'll, whatever I need to do to get her back. And so she comes back, and she, she says, all right, well, let's, let's give this another trial. We'll work through this. And so he, it's almost like he became a new man. He's a lot nicer to her. He's kinder. He's sweeter. His words are gentle. For about a month. And he goes right back to yelling and screaming and just tearing her down. And it got so bad that she eventually had to walk out from that situation. See, I think that husband, he felt remorse. He felt bad. He didn't like the consequences of his sin. He didn't like where it led. Maybe the embarrassment of having to tell people why his wife left or he had to kind of take care of things without her. So he's willing to maybe change the behavior, but not change his heart. You see, if you just try to change the behavior, it's temporary. But if you change the heart, the behavior changes. It's transformation. You see, the thing is, I don't think he really wanted to repent. See, repentance is not just saying that you're sorry. You know, repentance is, you know, part of it's saying you're sorry, part of it's feeling remorseful, but really repent comes from this Greek word called metanoia. Someone say metanoia. 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 And really what this means is to change your mind, your perception, your worldview. It's like this. Imagine that you're, you're driving down 287 South and you're going, and all of a sudden you realize, I have a meeting in Bergen County. I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. So you pull off on this exit here, and then you, you turn around, you make a U-turn, and you head back on 287 North where you're supposed to go. That's the idea of repentance. Your part is to turn away from the sin, the behavior, the attitude, the false belief that you have, and then God will do the miraculous and change your heart. And so I want to look at three steps that we can take when you've crashed your life how you can get to the other side. It may begin in tragedy, but it could end in triumph. But I want to be clear here. You may still have to deal with the consequences of your sin. You may still have to deal with broken relationships. You may still have to deal with legal issues. But you can experience spiritual transformation and be better on the other side of it. You can experience healing and wholeness that comes through Christ. So the first step in this process is to take ownership of your sin. Listen to what David prays here. He prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. So David uses three different words for sin. The word is transgressions, the word is iniquity, and the word is sin. You know, we kind of just all say it's all one word, sin. But he's talking about all these different dimensions. There's one dimension of, hey, there's this corporate sin. I sinned against Israel. I let them down as their king. And then a more personal sense. I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against Bathsheba. And then this more cosmic sense where he sinned against God himself. And he's saying, God, it's all my fault. I did all of it. It's not anyone else's fault but mine. It's my sin. I own it. And this is actually one of those interesting things. This is why David is called a man after God's own heart, because he owns it right away. He doesn't argue. He doesn't minimize. But more often than that, he doesn't blame. I think many of us, when we're confronted with our sin and failures, we can sometimes lean into blame shifting, where it's everyone else's fault, 
but ours. And David could have done that. He goes, it's not my fault, it's Bathsheba's fault. What was she doing taking a shower over there? What was she doing looking so beautiful? And she got pregnant, not me. He could have gone into that. You know, no, it's Uriah's fault. It's Uriah's fault. You know, if he wasn't so uptight, and if he wasn't such a man of integrity, he would have gone and been with his wife, and he'd still be alive. She would have been married to him. It would have been better that way. God, it's your fault. It's your fault, God, because you made me with these urges. It's, you gave me the biology, God. This is all on you, not me. Or, I'm the king. It's good to be the king. I'm entitled. I can do what I want. I take what I want. You do you, I do me, and that's how it goes. David didn't do any of that. When Nathan confronts him, he says, yeah, I did it. He's confronted with the horror of what he, de- what he did. And he's got no one else to blame but himself. That's why he sings back to God. He sings, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David's saying, God, you are right. Your judgment is right. Mine was wrong. Now listen, maybe you haven't hired a hit on somebody and then covered it up. And maybe you're not the potentate of a small Middle Eastern kingdom. But who are you blaming right now? Who are you holding responsible for your own misery, your own anger, and ultimately your own sin? Well, you know what? It's my kids' fault. They get me so angry, that's why I put holes in the wall. It's them, it's them not me. Or, you know, it's, it's, my, it's my wife's fault. That's why I had the affair. If she was nicer to me and more open, then, you know, it wouldn't happen. It's all her fault. It's my roommate's fault that I, I failed my English course. If they weren't always having people over and having parties, I would have been able to, it's their fault. It's not mine. You know what? I deserve this drink tonight. I deserve to have, you know, I, I make enough money. I take care of my family. So I deserve a couple of drinks. Yeah, it gets a little out of hand sometimes, but I deserve it. It's, it's what I need. But here's the reality. That's the story that you've chosen to believe. You've woven this story, and it's around a lie. And when you believe that lie, you stay stuck in the crash. When you unearth that lie, and you admit that God is right and you are wrong, that's when transformation begins. A couple years ago, um, a friend of mine was working for a company. It was a really crazy season at that job. So he's working several days, you know, you know, he's working nonstop, late nights, early mornings. He's there on weekends. And so he's like working like a dog. And then his supervisor approached him and said, hey, listen, um, can we talk? And so, you know, he goes into his boss's office. He goes, I notice there's a couple of irregularities in your accounting. Can we talk through that? And so there's an investigation, you know, there's an audit. And they found out that my friend was actually embezzling thousands of dollars from his company. It was really bad. He, you know, he ended up losing his job. There are all these legal issues that were taking place. Uh, he almost lost his family because of it. I remember uh, years later after he'd gone through it, we would talk about it and say, what happened? Like, walk me through that. Because, you know, this is a guy who I went to church with. He loved Jesus. And all of a sudden, he, he did this thing that's almost unthinkable. He's stealing all this money. And he said, you know, it started out small. Like, I'm working these late hours, and I'm doing all this work. And so I'm like, you know, 
I'm working really hard. I deserve a little bit of this. And you know, it's, I know I'm taking it, I know it's wrong, but it's really not my fault. It's my boss's fault. He doesn't really see how valuable I am. Otherwise, he would have paid me more. And he's like, you know what, my wife, you know, she wants to live in this expensive state, and so I'm working so hard. You know, she's really the one making me take this money. And he goes, you know, and my kids, you know, they always need braces, so now I'm going to take a little bit more. And so he's going into all these things and finally goes, you know what I realized, Nathan? Like, even though stealing, that was the sin, there was something deeper than that. I put myself as the judge of what was right and wrong. That's God's job. I said, God, why don't you move out of the throne and I'll sit on it for a little bit? It was the sin of pride. He put himself in the place of God. And that's the sin that God wanted him to own. Yep, you're going to sin in all these other ways, but this is the one that you need to surrender to me when you stop blaming. So who do you need to stop blaming? What sin do you need to take ownership of? And actually say, I'm sorry, God. Not sorry, I'm not sorry, but actually say, yeah, I I did this that was wrong. I messed up. Because when you finally get to that place where you identify that sin and you go, this is the horror of what I've done against God. This is the evil that I've been a part of. When you recognize it, then you can begin to start turning away from it. And actually, you can get to the place where you can actually invite God to do a new work in you, which is to ask for a clean heart. And that's what David does. Once he finally owns the depths of evil of his sin, he asks for a clean heart. Listen to what he prays here. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be spotless as snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice and hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So remember that word hyssop I said to hold on to? See, hyssop was this flower in the ancient world, and it had these very thick branches. And so what people would do is they would kind of cut hyssop off of the branches, they would tie them together, and they'd put a sponge on it, and you'd also get, you get like a all-natural loofah. And so that's what they did. They'd make these loofahs. And so David is essentially saying, God, I need a Holy Spirit loofah right now on my heart. I need you to clean off all the dirty parts of me. I I need you to erase the sin, like completely get rid of it. Like, I need it gone, God. And only you can do that. Can you cleanse me with hyssop? Go down deep. Like, take my sin like an Instagram, like a Snapchat post and just make it go away in 10 seconds. Can you do that, God? Because really, what David is asking God to do is, God, you have identified the darkness in my heart. You've identified the depth of my brokenness, the depth of my disparity, the depth of my depravity. And so he asks God to do a creative work. He's like, God, you created the world. Can you recreate my heart? And he sings these words to God. He sings, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Guys, this is the good news. Many of you think, hey, you know, God is waiting for me to mess up. God is looking down from heaven and when I mess up, when I sin, boom, he's going to get me. He's going to make things worse. Not only am I going to get myself into a crash, but God's going to crush me while I'm in the crash. But that is not the heart of God. Look at what David did. When David sinned and he sinned big, he turns and runs back to God. Why? Because the heart of God is to embrace the sinner, not to kill him. Amen. 
Amen? The heart of God is to rescue, not destroy. This is the heart of our God. So when we find ourselves broken and crushed out of something that we've done ourselves, a self-inflicted mood, God is saying, come to me. Come to me. Because when you repent, someone say repent with me. God can do what? Restore. When you turn to him, open your heart to him, he can restore and recreate something new. You know, maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you're like, man, you don't know what I've done. Like, I'm just waiting for the lightning bolt to come down and crash on me. Like, I'm waiting for God to kind of strike me down. But that's not God's heart. When you sin, he wants to be even closer to you. When you sin, he takes a step towards you, not away from you. When you understand the horror of what you've done, of what you've believed, or what you've held on to, that doesn't scare God. He moves in because he loves you, and he wants to transform you. But we live in a culture today that I really believe is crying out for help. You see, that's what the Psalms are. Their, their cries are pleas. And God's like, I will help you if you cry out to me, if you reach out to me. I want to rescue you from that. In fact, that's what, I, that's what I think about whenever I listen to this song by The Weeknd and Kendrick Lamar called Pray For Me. Check out these words. If this isn't the words of us crying out to God, check it out. Tell me who's gonna save me from myself sings these incredibly powerful words. Let me just go through these again. Tell me who's going to save me from myself. Tell me who's going to save me from this hell. Who's going to pray for me? Who's going to take my pain from me? Who's going to save my soul for me? There's one answer, and that is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus is the one who can save you from yourself, save you from the hell that you've created for you, and take your pain and save your soul. Amen? This is what the end of the restoration process. You see, you may have to deal with the consequences of your sin, but in the midst of it, you can still look to Jesus for restoration. Amen? Amen. Your life doesn't have to end in tragedy. Your life doesn't have to end with the mistakes and the failures you made. God can rework them and transform them. Look what David prays. He starts off this prayer with these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your what? unfailing love. The Hebrew word for unfailing love is chesed. Who remembers chesed? A couple weeks ago, you're spitting on your neighbor. Chesed, right? Remember that? (laughs) Every one of the Psalms that we've looked at has had this word because it is the unconditional, undeserving love of God. And he gives that love to us because it's undeserved because you didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, you did the opposite. You did everything to not deserve the love of God. You did everything to offend God, right? If we're really honest about our sin. But it also says it's unconditional, which means once you get it, you can't shake it off. Once you get the love of God, ain't nothing you can do that he's going to stop loving you. He's with you now and for all time. And that's the love of God that we need to lean into when we crash our lives. A couple years ago, there was a friend of mine who started a nonprofit 
And whenever we'd meet and, you know, we'd talk about it, I would tell him, dude, you're doing such a great job. Like, you are crushing it. Like, your organization's growing. It's doing so good. But then behind his back, when other people would ask me if they should work with them and, and do stuff with them, I'd say, I don't think so. It's a bad idea. They're just disorganized. I don't think he knows what he's doing. Literally, I was tearing down my friend's organization and my friend behind his back. And this went on for years. And, and I'll be honest, I think I kind of knew what I was doing, but, but the truth of the matter is I, I'm a recovering people pleaser. And so to my friend's face, I wanted to make him feel good, but I didn't want to actually tell him the truth as I saw it in that moment. So a couple years go by, and he comes up to me and says, hey, can we talk? And I'm like, sure, what do you want to talk about? He goes, well, you know, I've been meeting with these people, and they were, they've been telling me that they don't want to work with our company because of conversations they've had with you. And so I'm, I'm losing business. But more than that, I, I thought we were friends. I feel really hurt. I feel betrayed. And in that moment, the horror of my lies and my gossip all hit me. And I just said, I'm so sorry. There's, there's nothing I, I can do to make this right. I wish I could take all those words back. I wish I could have not said the things that I said. I wish I could have done it all differently. Can, can you forgive me? And you know, my friend, he's a good guy. He, he forgave me. But in that moment, I lost a friend because of my sin. I had to deal with, with its consequences. And I remember just saying, Lord, I screwed up. I messed up. Can you forgive me? Like, I, I own this, God. It's not anyone else's fault but mine. It's my words. There's no excuses. But God, can you give me a clean heart? Can you change my heart so I don't do stuff like this again? Can you transform me from the inside out? And so I had to look to Jesus in the midst of that because I messed up. You see, I needed to repent because I knew the way I was using my words were not building people up, but tearing people down. I needed to turn away from that. But then God had to do something in me. He, he restored me. He restored uh, my, the joy of my salvation. He restored peace. He restored hope. And all of this was done on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Only because of the cross can we have restoration? Only because of the cross can we have hope. I don't know what you've done or how you've crashed your life, but I can tell you that there is hope. Tragedy can end in triumph still. When you can get to the place where you can take ownership of your sin, where you can ask God to actually give you a new heart, a clean heart, but then you look to him for restoration because you're still going to have to deal with the consequences of what you've done the broken relationships, maybe some legal issues, whatever it might be, those consequences are still there. And as you walk through them, you can look to Jesus in the midst of it all. Your story's not over, amen? amen. Your story's not over. God is not done with you. And begins with confession. In fact, that's one of the things as a church we've done for 2,000 years is we celebrate the Lord's Supper or Communion. Some places they call it the Eucharist. 
as a way to, to pause and to remember what Jesus has done for us. Because the thing is, when Jesus came, he, he died for our sins. He died to cleanse us, to give us new life. And we need to remember that. And so whenever we celebrate communion, that's what we do. We remember what Jesus did for us. But we also remember that he's still at work in us. And repentance is not a one-time thing. We do it often. Because we're going to mess up again and again and again. But because of the cross, if we go to God and turn away from our sin and repent, he promises to restore. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion which is our ability to say, hey, we're going to stop saying sorry and start letting Jesus transform our hearts so we can experience real change, real transformation. So what do you need to take ownership of today? What do you need to own? What sin do you need to stop blaming other people for and say, it's my fault? I'm just going to own it. And have you asked God to give you a clean heart? He's waiting for you to ask. He's waiting for you to, to come clean to him so he can give you a clean heart. You know, the hyssop, something interesting about it is when God's people were in Egypt, they would take the hyssop and, and drip it in blood and they'd actually put it on the doors so that when the Spirit of God would come, he'd pass over the houses that were covered in blood so he could rescue God's people. It's a picture of God's rescue of us in the midst of our sin, our sorrow, and our brokenness. So here's what I want to do. Wherever you are in this process, maybe you're in the midst of it right now, you've crashed your life, and you're not sure what the next steps are, you need God to create in you a clean heart. Amen? So here's what I want to do before we enter into time of communion. I want us to pray the very words of David. Pray the words of creating a clean heart, all in one voice across all of our campuses to invite God to do a work in us. So let's pray that together. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, the very things that David asked you not to do, he said, don't cast me away, don't take your spirit away. You cast Jesus away. You took your spirit from him. Jesus became the horror of sin, the spectacle of death, so that we could have a restored relationship with you. And to this day, you work to restore us from the deep places of brokenness. And so God, as we come before you and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, how you have not forgotten us, show us where we need to confess so that your spirit can transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.